This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB Public Media app. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. I hope you had a great weekend. Um, and it's Thanksgiving week. So, I, you know, one of the things I'm thankful for, very thankful for, is to be have been born in the United States because our country um, we have freedoms and uh, we can have shows like this and we can express our views. Um, and our country has a long history of giving refuge to immigrants from around the world. My grandfather, for example, was one and lots of people's grandfathers and grandmothers were immigrants and came to this country. And today we're excited to professor to welcome Professor Amelia McGowan, who is the director of the immigration clinic at the University of Arkansas School of Law uh, to the show. She's a Mississippian. Uh, she's going to talk about uh, immigration law. Professor McGowan, good morning. Uh, would you please morning. Tell us little, good morning. Would you please tell us a little bit about your background, which includes those ties to Mississippi and how you became interested in immigration law? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Richard and Liz. Um, so I am a native Mississippian, grew up in Mississippi, grew up in Hattiesburg and uh, went to Southern Miss. And that's actually where I became interested in immigration law. Um, I studied in the Honors College, actually studied as a, uh, started as a marine biology major. My goal was to become an ichthyologist and <laughs> uh, changed course. Um, I started working quite a bit with students at the then English Language Institute. I was working with students from all over the world. There was a really fantastic program there. Um, and so I got to meet a lot of students from all over the world, and many of them were very anxious about their immigration status, about what was going to happen after they graduated. Um, and at the same time, I studied in the Honors College. I had switched my major to history, and I started studying um, foreign exchange students who came to Southern Miss back from the 40s to the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, to that English language school um, that was originally called the Latin American Institute. And there were students from all over the Americas who came to study, and it was actually part of U.S. Cold War policy. So I got really interested in the idea of immigration and especially students coming to the U.S., and um, that's what got me interested in immigration. And when I went to law school, this was the only thing I wanted to do. So I thought if it didn't work out, if I wasn't interested in immigration, it was going to be a disaster. But thankfully, it really worked out. Well, there are a lot of issues of immigration, but one one that you've written on recently is asylum law. Yes. Um, and uh, you, you got an article coming out called Force Back into the Lion's Mouth, Per Se Reporting Requirements in U.S. Asylum Law. So what exactly is asylum that's a great question. Um, and that's like you said, it's it's primarily what I work on. So asylum at its heart is protection, offering protection to non-citizens who are fleeing persecution. Um, so it's actually based in the night in the U.S. It's based on the 1967 protocol relating to the status of refugees. It's a U.N. treaty. Um, and so many countries have adopted similar systems. But it offers protection to certain non-citizens who have suffered past persecution or hold what's called a well-founded fear of future persecution 
based on a protected ground. And those protected grounds are a person's religion, their political opinion, their nationality, um, their membership in a particular social group. Um, what else does I say? Political opinion, nationality, political uh, membership in a particular social group. Um, sorry, I just went blank there. <laughs> but on those protected grounds of asylum. Um, and so basically you have to demonstrate that you have you have suffered or will suffer persecution based on one of those protected grounds. So you can't just demonstrate that you have a fear, kind of a general fear of returning to your home country. It has to be on one of those um, protected grounds. And, I, re- and I remember the- watching all the, the TV shows in the, the 70s and the 80s. It was someone wanted to defect. They were they yes. were, you know, po- political and they they uh, feared returning back to their home. Yeah, absolutely. And most people, when they think of asylum, you know, think of that political ground and political opinion. And that is very common. Um, but it's important to remember that you can have any of these other protected grounds as well. And sometimes you can have more than one. So we've represented clients who, for example, have had uh, fears based on their political opinion, but also, for example, sexual orientation, which can fit under particular social groups. So it's possible to have more than one. So when a person, how do they, how do they claim asylum? I mean, what, what exactly, Liz and I both remember that I, I defect. I mean, they can't just say right. I defect. So, you know, and you're, I'm sure your students uh, and your clinic work with maybe some people who are seeking asylum. How, how does a person claim asylum and what's the process? So we work with a lot of people seeking asylum. Um, and there are two primary ways to seek asylum. Uh, one's called affirmative asylum and the other is called defensive asylum. So for affirmative asylum, um, what the person will do is generally it's somebody who has entered the U.S. with some kind of status. Generally, but not always. Um, so in many cases, it's somebody who is, say, entered with a student visa. It could be somebody who's entered with a tourist visa. They've already come into the United States and they entered the United States without kind of um, they've, they've entered with authorizations. So there's no problem at the border. Um, and so they are now seeking asylum now that they're in the United States. But affirmative asylum could also be somebody who's coming into the United States and they don't have status. So they're coming without documents, but they have entered without being apprehended by a border agent. So you can also seek affirmative asylum that way. Um, those are the primary groups of people who can seek it, you know, uh, in this affirmative process. So that process is comparatively to defensive, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, affirmative asylum is generally, it's not, a, it's not an easy process by any means, but it's not adversarial in the way that defensive is that I'm going to talk about. So um, you, file, you file your application, you have your fingerprints taken, and then you have an interview with um, a, a local asylum office. So you're in the room with an officer, you're asking questions. And again, it can be extremely difficult, but it's not adversarial. And then that officer will make a decision on your case. Defensive, on the other hand, are for people who have been apprehended either at the border or within the United States. It could be that they sought asylum at the border and don't have another status. So the government has let them in the country just to seek asylum. Um, But basically, they're seeking asylum within these proceedings that we used to call deportation proceedings, now call removal proceedings. So they are um, in immigration court, which is an administrative law court. 
They're before an immigration judge. Um, it is an adversarial process. So, um, you know, people, uh, they can be represented, but also they are facing a prosecutor. Uh, in this case, it's the ICE attorney, which is on the Department of Homeland Security. He's asking the questions, cross-examining them. So it can be um, very difficult. Um, and these proceedings, in either affirmative or defensive, can take a very long time. So, um, you know, I've worked with clients before who have been in immigration court proceedings for eight or nine years. And that could be just because of backlogs in the immigration court system. It could be because of, you know, we had a lot of delays because of COVID. Um, it could be for any number of reasons, but many of these cases can be delayed for a pretty long time. How do people work when they're in that situation? How do they make, I mean, if somebody's here for nine years in that kind of um, limbo, what exactly do they do? They can't work legally in that situation, can they? So you can, when you have a pending asylum application, um, you can work, you can apply for a work permit after your application has been pending for 150 days. And then the immigration uh, authorities, USCIS, can actually grant that application which is, once it's been pending for 180 days. So um, you can work. But one thing I want to add here is that not all asylum seekers are out and, you know, in the in the general population. Um, many asylum seekers are detained. So you might have heard of immigration detention. So, you know, that's not going to be something that will be accessible to them while they're detained. So, um you know, many people throughout the country are detained. We've got a couple of immigration detention centers around us. Um, some of those detention centers hold people who have sought asylum at the border and are going through these defensive proceedings from detention. So, um, you know, that's it's important to mention that as well, that some asylum seekers are going through this from detention. And um, well, let's let's talk about per se reporting requirements. That's something you mentioned in your article. What? First of all, you know, I think non-lawyers, uh, what what does per se even mean? Yeah, so it's kind of like a bright line rule, a hard line rule where there are no exceptions. So these reporting requirements are um, requirements that force asylum seekers um, who are fleeing non-state persecutors. So here's important to, to talk about, you know, if you're fleeing a persecution, you can both be fleeing the state. And or you could be fleeing a non-state persecutor like a domestic abuser, like gangs. We see a lot of clients who are fleeing domestic abusers. So per se reporting requirements force people who are fleeing non-state persecutors like domestic abusers or gangs. When they come to the U.S. to seek asylum, under these requirements, they have to show that they first reported these abusers or persecutors to the authorities in their home before seeking protection in the U.S., um, as I talk about in the article, this can be problematic for a lot of ways. A lot of people don't report, but for good reason. Um, they could fear retribution from the persecutor. There are situations where gangs, for example, are closely tied with, um, you know, the authorities in their home countries. And so reporting might not be safe or it may be an exercise in futility. And so my article is really talking about why where in courts that have imposed these, it's not all courts, but in the courts that have imposed these, it can actually uh, push asylum seekers into further danger. If you have a question about immigration law and or, you know, what has happened in the past in Mississippi, we would love for you to be part of our show. 
You can send us your questions to our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everybody has a chance to listen to our show live, so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. So even though the ACLU is the American Civil Liberties Union, their website says, regardless of your immigration status, you have guaranteed rights under the Constitution. Learn more here about your rights as an immigrant and how to express them if stopped by law enforcement. So their website has information in English and also a PDF you can download for Spanish speakers. I'll have the link to that ACLU-Mississippi website on this show's podcast information. Oh, it's, it's ACLU-MS.org. We are talking about immigrants with our guest, attorney Amelia McGowan, an assistant clinical professor and the immigration clinic director at the University of Arkansas School of Law. Yeah, it's great to have Amelia here, Liz, um, and such an interesting topic and an important topic. And Amelia, you were part of a team of lawyers uh, who were doing uh, pro bono work, uh, and you represented uh, over 100 Mississippians impacted by the ICE raids in 2019. Will you please talk about those raids and, and why lawyers got involved? Absolutely. Um, and Liz, I want to thank you for sharing that information. Uh, it's really important to get out. Um, and I'm going to talk about a little bit about that in the context of these raids. So um, a lot of listeners who've been in the area might remember back in August of 2019, um, there was a it was the largest statewide ice raid in U.S. history, where about 700 people who were working in chicken plants throughout central Mississippi were arrested um, and put into these removal proceedings that I was talking about, these defensive proceedings uh, that we used to call uh, deportation proceedings. Um, and so on that particular day, like I said, about 700 people were arrested, taken to, um, I think it was a National Guard barracks in central Mississippi, and uh, fingerprinted, and uh, a number of people were taken to detention that I mentioned earlier, immigration detention centers throughout the area, um, some people were released that day, allowed to go back home. Um, and it caused a number of tremendous legal issues. It caused tremendous humanitarian issues. Um, your listeners might have remembered seeing in the news uh, kids who were at home. It was actually the first day of school that day in many of the cities. So kids who were going home and school bus drivers had to look in homes to make sure, you know, there was someone to take care of the children they were dropping off. Um so it raised a lot of issues, a lot of legal and humanitarian issues. But one of the issues, uh, as you mentioned, we worked on, I was at the Mississippi Center for Justice at the time, but we were working closely with a number of organizations, including the University of Mississippi School of Law, to provide legal representation for people who were arrested. So, um, and that was in a number of areas. So I know the clinic at the housing clinic at Ole Miss worked with a couple of people who were, um, you know, had eviction issues after this happened. Um, my team was primarily working on people who, uh, representing people who are now facing these removal proceedings, because um, that was now hundreds of people who are now put in these removal proceedings. 
Um, we also had people working very closely with, um, I know Professor Cliff Johnson was working closely also with the federal public defenders um, who were providing uh, criminal law representation because a number of folks uh, arrested in the ICE raids were uh, had criminal charges as well related to the, uh, you know, working um, at the plants. So there were a lot of legal issues. So the particular work that we did in the immigration proceedings was representing people in these removal proceedings. Um, I think we're going to talk a little bit that, about that later, but um, you know, people are now facing these proceedings to determine their right to remain in the U.S., to see if they have any legal defenses. So we were working on that. And, and as I mentioned before, many of these cases take years. And so many folks arrested in the ICE raids are still um, in the middle of these proceedings. You know, we talk about, we call it, you know, we call it the ICE raids. And I think a lot of people may not even know what that is, but what, yeah. what what is ICE and what was the purpose of the raids? I mean, they must have done this for a reason. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so ICE is an agency um, under the Department of Homeland Security um, in, in the, uh, the U.S. government. It's an executive agency. So Immigration Customs Enforcement is charged with enforcing uh, certain immigration laws. So they do a lot of internal enforcement of immigration laws. So um, their stated purpose of these raids um, was to, so there's a press conference shortly after it, they were working closely with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and their stated purpose was to, um, you know, they were not only investigating people for criminal activity, as they said, so which is why the U.S. Attorney's Office was involved, um, but also many of the people involved, uh, you know, who are arrested those days um, were the government was alleging that they didn't have immigration status. And so they were putting them in these removal proceedings. Um, so what that meant was now hundreds of people are, you know, facing removal from the country. So, um, you know, depending on the presidential administration, you can see kind of changes in whatever their enforcement priorities are for immigration, some focus on, you know, people who have had criminal histories, others have more broadly a focus on people who, um, you know, don't have immigration status in the country. So that can really change from presidential administration to presidential administration. So a lot of the people picked up in the raids, it was just that they had, um, you know, the government was arguing that they didn't have an immigration status. And, well, you know, it's interesting to me because, they, you, you mentioned they were raided at a place of business. Yes. Was the owner or the people who uh, ran that, that, uh, chicken plant, were they, were, did they suffer any consequences? Another really good question. To the best of my knowledge, you know, there were some, uh, I think middle managers who may have gotten just a few, a handful who had gotten charged, but, um, I am not aware of any now. Um, I'm, I may not be aware of, of everything that happened, but that's my understanding of the consequences that they faced. Now, they also didn't have a lot of workers. You know, they lost a lot of workers. But, you know, I, from my perspective, the tremendous weight of these raids fell on the workers. Um, and, you know, we, we talked with a number of workers about this who were very upset that, you know, they had been at these plants for a very long time. They had, you know, put in blood, sweat, and tears, and, and you know, now they were suffering and paying for it. And and they're it they're, from a tax point of view. 
taxes are withheld from their wages. Yes, uh, absolutely. So they are taxpayers. I think people don't realize that. Absolutely. Don't think about that. Always got to bring up the tax situation. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And, 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 and ha- many of the workers, you know, all the workers with whom I worked had really, really deep ties in their communities. Um, you know, their absence left tremendous holes in their communities. Um, they left family members behind. They left friends behind, you know, other church members behind. Um, they were really, really important members of the communities in which they lived. And, do people, and Liz alluded to this before with the ACLU, but do people who are in the U.S. who are not legally here, do they have any rights under yes. our Constitution? Yes, it's a great question. And many constitutional rights apply to you, even if you don't have an immigration status. So it's really important to stress. Um, in fact, in these immigration proceedings that I've talked about, while they can seem, while they are very daunting, um, people, these removal proceedings also have rights, including due process rights in these proceedings, a right to a full and fair hearing. Um, you have a right to um, to bring counsel with you, although a lot of people are surprised to know that that counsel is not provided to you by the U.S. government and like criminal proceedings. So even though you face deportation, you face a lifetime potentially of separation from your family and community, um, you have to find counsel. So that was one of the reasons why we worked so hard to try to uh, make sure that people who needed counsel had counsel in these proceedings. Yeah, this list of, of, of rights that the ACLU has listed on their website, you know, there are things that everybody needs to know about also uh, if you're stopped Absolutely. if you're stopped by the police what you can and what you can't do what you should say to find out if you're under arrest um uh, you know you don't have to let them whether you have to let them search your vehicle or uh you know how it is or if you're questioned about your immigration status because i, I would imagine sometimes People who are American can get questioned yes. uh, by their immigration status yes. if someone's ready to start something. <laughs> yes, definitely. It's really good. It's it's really good information to have. Email us your questions or your show topic ideas. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We do hope you'll subscribe to our podcast or find all the MPB Think Radio recordings from the website mpbonline.org slash radio. Hey, that's also where you can listen over the Internet. If you want to read what the Immigration and Customs Enforcement has to say about the 2019 searches, I'll have a link on this show's information page to ICE's news release. We are talking about immigrants this Thanksgiving week with our guest, Attorney Amelia McGowan, an assistant clinical professor and the immigration clinic director at the University of Arkansas School of Law. And it's just really... A pleasure to have Amelia here. Um, she gave a presentation at our law school. And, uh, you know, I think we were all 
uh, so many of us remember her from when she was with the Mississippi Center for Justice. And so, you know, we don't have an immigration law clinic at Ole Miss. We do have, as you mentioned, Cliff Johnson and Desiree Hensley uh, with the housing clinic, Desiree and Cliff with the uh, MacArthur Justice Center. Um, do a lot of work that relates to people who might have uh, immigration issues. But when you run a clinic like the one at the University of Arkansas, what, what kind of issues do your students work on? So our students work primarily on uh, issues of asylum and related protections. So there are a couple of related protections, like as uh, called withholding of removal, and there's a special protection for people who are feeling torture under the UN Convention Against Torture. So um, our students work on these cases primarily. We also work on some cases for other types of humanitarian cases. So we represent people who have suffered uh, crimes here in the U.S. who might be eligible for something called a U visa. Um, we represent a lot of survivors of domestic violence who might be eligible for a U visa or a special protection called VAWA under the Violence Against Women's Act. So that's primarily what we focus on. We have a couple calls who have uh, asked to participate in our show. Let's first go to Hattiesburg and speak with Benjamin. Benjamin, we're so glad you're part of In Legal Terms today when we're talking about immigration with Amelia McGowan. What's your comment or question? Yeah, so I just wanted to, my name is Ben Thornton. I just wanted to uh, comment um, how I met uh, Professor McGowan years ago. Uh, when she was working for the ACLU, and um, back then, some of the local school districts had adopted a policy that had been proposed as a law, and it was the the proposal was that to register your child, you would have to show a, a state issued ID, and there was no way around that. Uh, so the upshot of that was that U.S. born United States citizen children of immigrant parents. Uh, would not be able to uh, to register their their children to go to public school, even though they could show uh, a light bill and a water bill to show their their residence in the in the school district. Um, so I went to register my daughter, and they said, "Okay, here's your light bill, your water bill. You're good to go. We just need your license." And it, it took me aback because I, I wasn't sure at the moment what was going on, uh, and so I, I said, "Well, you know, I'm not going to give it to you." <laughs> um, and they said, well, that's great. You can't register your daughter for school. Uh, and I said, well, we'll see about that. Um, so I left the school, and uh, I called the ACLU and uh, was put on the uh, in communication with uh, uh, Amelia McGow, an attorney. And within a few days, the school district was calling me and begging me to please come register my child for school. Um, so that happened because of some... Uh, excellent advocacy on the part of uh, Attorney McGowan. And if you can imagine, uh, policies like this, or proposed policies like this, the, you know, the, the potential effect is um, it's frightening because it, it creates an opportunity for there to be a class of U.S. American citizens um, who were denied a public education. And if you can imagine that across the country, a, a, just a, a wave of children grown into adults who never got to go to school, um, that would be uh, a, a huge negative for our country and certainly our state. Uh, and it were, were it not for advocates like uh, Professor McGowan, um, who knows how far these things could go. And that's my comment. Ben, it's so good to hear from you. Also, so uh, thank you so much for coming. Uh, Arkansas is close to here, but it's too far away, and we would like to have Ms. McGowan back. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Ben. It's great to talk to you. Thank you for calling. Thank you. That that is a great story. Yeah, I remember. I, I didn't have the gumption that uh, that Ben did, but I when I registered my kids, I think in the early two thousands, they asked for a social security card. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad Ben called. That's just a that was a great call. I really um, and and it it shows that the work. Of lawyers like Amelia and other lawyers do make a difference in people's lives. All right. Before we get back to our, our planned topics, let's take another call. John from Jackson, we're so glad you've called in to In Legal Terms today. We're discussing immigration and immigration law with our guest, Amelia McCowan, professor and attorney. What is your comment or question, John? Uh, I was going to make a comment about the uh, ICE raids and the people who were detained. Um, I probably made, uh, on behalf of a local church, and I don't consider myself a, a pointy-headed, bleeding-heart liberal, but I probably made eight or ten trips to two different detention centers in Louisiana to help transport uh, the detainees who were being released home. This probably about six weeks before the COVID lockdown because uh, my last trip was stopped when the detention facilities locked down because COVID was was rampant in those facilities. Um, These individuals, uh, sometimes I had three people in my truck um, at a time. Uh, We were lucky we had somebody who could speak Spanish uh, that we could call on the phone so we could communicate. But if people could see how these folks lived, most of them had been in Mississippi for four or five years. The longest one I transported home had been in Mississippi nine years. Uh, They had the cooperation of the business owners of these uh, chicken plant facilities to get them either forged documents or hired them, assuring them that their documentation was adequate. These These were not educated people. They worked terribly hard. Sometimes I got them home uh, at midnight. Uh, Their families and little children would be out crying uh, on the front porch. It really break your heart. So, and these folks are paying taxes in Mississippi. They forget about that. And I do remember an interview with a a native Mississippian who was not an immigrant, who was interviewed about two weeks after the ice raid started, who had started working at one of the chicken plants who said, yeah, I've been working here for two weeks, and uh, I'm really glad to have a job, but I'm not sure I'm, I'm really up to doing the work. And this was a young man. And so I thought, here are these folks who come into the country who do the work, pay the taxes, and um, really don't have very many protections. And I think the people in Mississippi just need to know um, who got really hurt in this. I, I, the only... The only um, folks who ran the companies who got into trouble, I think there were only two in maybe one of the plants in Forest, I can't remember, who came under some sort of legal uh, complications, but uh, the the big money folks who ran the places, as I understand it, uh, paid no penalty, but the the small fry were really burned in the whole operation, and I just think the people in Mississippi know that these were harmless people who just wanted to work. I was I was, I was, I got my own education about what type of folks are coming into the country. And um, I applaud the immigration lawyers who at least 
give them a hope um, that they will not be um, extremely punished for things that are in many ways beyond their control. That, that's just my comment. John, uh, I'll the rest of it offline. John, I'm so glad that, uh, that that you called in to share just your tangential uh, experience. Um, and, and, you know, thank you for being part of that, uh, uh, that, uh, charity, public service, uh, whatever you want to call, um, assisting Mississippi residents, uh, to get back to their homes. Thank you so much for yeah, sharing I, that. I, I, I was just a driver. There were a lot of other people who did much more work to, to network and coordinate all those activities. I just... I just happened to uh, meet the people uh, who needed to get home uh, when they were released from detention. And uh, thanks for the program. Thank you. Amelia, did you have any, uh, any comment about the, uh, an, an additional comment about the ICE situation that happened here in 2019 that you'd like to share? Well, and he was you know, saying through tw- you know, the beginning of 2020. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, John, I just also want to thank you for your your role in helping people who were impacted by those raids. Um, you know, what John mentions, I had the benefit of getting to see so many of the communities impacted by the raids really come together. You know, we would do legal clinics and communities impacted by the raids. And there were churches who would set up, you know, nightly meals that they would cook for members of the community. Um, there were food pantries. Um because many of the people impacted by the raids who were released were then hit by COVID very shortly after that. And so families were hit two and three and four times. Um, And so it was really wonderful to see the communities coming together. And I think it really demonstrated kind of back to Richard's point about the purpose of the ICE raids. It was really unclear to us, you know, what the purpose really was. The people who were doing the work and really involved in these communities, um, were the ones hurting, their families were hurting. Um, and, and so I'm grateful for people like John who really stepped up and, and provided support to families who needed it. We'll take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on the MPB Think Radio YouTube channel. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. So uh, we had the show Immigration on October 1st of 2019. Our guest was Patricia Ice, Legal Project Director at Mississippi Immigrants Rights Alliance. And she spoke about the work of MIRA and the ramifications to families from those August 2019 immigration raids in Mississippi. But then we also had a show in 2017 on immigration law. Attorney Lee Russell discussed immigration role, the role of ICE, and visa overstays. I'll have a link to that podcast and a link to Mira, where you can learn more about their work on this show's podcast. We're talking today with attorney Amelia McGowan, an assistant clinical professor and the immigration clinic director 
at the University of Arkansas School of Law about immigration and immigrants. Well, as John's call was so heartening, it really was that, you know, there are people there who are helping. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, I'm thankful I immigrated here by being born here, you know, and uh, and didn't have to go through a process to become a U.S. citizen. And I think people forget, you know, those of us who are born here, how, how lucky those, we really those are. Those tests are pretty hard. <laughs> they are. They are, definitely. And, and so people who didn't have the privilege of being born here and who are trying to make a better life for themselves, it's, it's nice that people like John understand that and we're helping them in that situation. And people like Amelia, uh, who on the legal side can, you know, advocate for them and, and make a difference in their lives. So thank you for being with us, Amelia. Um, Thank you. You, uh, you know, when you talk, who are the who are the clients that come to the University of Arkansas uh, uh, clinic? How do they get there? I mean, are they? Do you do? Can you meet with them remotely these days? Yes. So our clients are primarily well. All of our clients are um, in Arkansas or former Arkansas students related to the university somehow. Um, and then we also represent you know Arkansans kind of more broadly throughout the state. So. Um, we get a lot of calls, um, like a lot of legal service providers. Um, and, you know, because of our nature as a clinic, we don't have a very heavy caseload. Um, but we, like I said, we focus primarily on asylum and these related protections. Um, we represent, we've represented students, former students, uh, faculty members, um, you know, on immigration issues. And, um, yeah, like I said, broader members of the Arkansas community who find out about us. It's such great work that you do. And, and clinics generally, you know, I think about our clinics and the clinics of law schools around the country that provide services for people, you know, when they would not otherwise have legal services. So, you know, generally speaking, why is clinical legal education so important to, to a law student? Yeah. So one of my favorite things to do is talk about clinical legal education, because a lot of people who are not in the law school world don't know about it. Um, so this is a way you know, when you go through law school, you have these sort of lecture classes, which are really important, and some seminar classes, but clinical education actually lets students start to practice law. So our students are actually representing clients, um, you know, having client meetings, preparing applications. Um, we're going to start branching more into appellate work, so they're going to be working more on briefs. Um, so all these things that can advocate for clients in court under my supervision, so it's a way for them to really put into practice what they've been learning. And I found for a lot of students, you know, the, the lecture classes may not make law real for them, but when they're actually able to start representing people, getting to meet with clients, seeing how the law can help people and support people and empower people, um, for some students, the switch just goes off. And, you know, they get really excited about it. They get, you know, for the first time, really kind of excited about being in law school. So um, it's neat to see that happen. So they get to, you know, have a lot of great experiences and it's kind of that first big step into becoming a lawyer. It's always, I mean, I remember thinking that uh, we we take a course called civil procedure in our first year of law school. And yes. it was always like reading the rules of monopoly without ever seeing the board, you know, without right. ever playing the exactly. game. And then you play the game, you know, so it makes Absolutely. a big difference. So I'm, I'm really, you know, I think it's great that your students have access to that education. Now, uh, you mentioned they're not uh, they're not lawyers yet. So how That's do right. they how do they represent clients? How can they possibly represent them and go to court and and do things that lawyers do? 
So many states, including Arkansas, including Mississippi, have a mechanism for students to practice law um, under an attorney's uh, attorney professor's supervision. So like in clinical programs, for example, um, my students, because we're practicing federal law, they're kind of separate regulations in immigration law that allow students to do the same thing in immigration court or board of immigration appeals um, under my supervision. Um, and as I mentioned, we're moving into some appellate work so students can actually also sign briefs, you know, for circuit um, appeals under my supervision as well. So they can't do anything on their own. So they're not filing anything on their own. It all has to be under my supervision, but they can actually sign, you know, which is big and they can actually prepare these documents. Um, so talk, talk a little bit more about how um, you, some other resources that you work with in Arkansas, uh, because I know the clinic doesn't, our clinics don't, Function all always on their right. own. They have other other organizations they work with. So, what organizations do you work with there? So, there are a number. Northwest Arkansas, in particular, has really seen a boom in immigration, which is fantastic, and it's been really great for the area. Um, and so, there are a number of immigration advocacy organizations, both in this part of the state, Little Rock, and other parts of the state, with whom we work really closely. Um, also, we've got a couple of consulates in the area. Um, we've got a consulate for the Republic of the Marshall Islands. There's a very large Marshallese population here. And there's also a very large Salvadoran population. Uh, there's a Salvadoran consulate uh, in Springdale, right outside of Fayetteville, and also the consulate of Mexico in Little Rock. So um, we work closely with consulates. We work really closely with um, social workers and people, other people providing uh, services, um, including mental health services for, um, you know, many of our clients. So you might imagine many people fleeing persecution and torture have suffered severe trauma. And so, you know, we work closely with them to connect our clients to those mental health supports. Um, we also work closely with other departments on campus. Um, you know, we, with the school of social work, you know, I've had some collaborations already, um, that some podcasts with the journalism department, just kind of getting the word out about the work that we do. So being at a, a really large university, it's, it's great to kind of have those interdepartmental, um, collaborations as well. Um, like I said, we also mentioned, uh, we also represent some people who have suffered crimes here in the U.S. and might be eligible for this U visa that I talked about. And that requires close collaboration with law enforcement um, who responded to these calls of, say, domestic violence or other crimes of violence. So, you know, we've developed some relationships as well with um, some of the local law enforcement agencies who are providing protection for um, people who have suffered this abuse. So pretty broad relationships. And that's really important because, you know, as I, my students and I talk about, when you practice immigration law, you're representing clients for this one particular matter, but clients are often, you know, might have insecurity in other ways. So there could be, you know, food insecurity. So being able to connect people with resources in other areas is also really important. Well, that, and that's something I think just, I think also people maybe listening to the show don't realize about lawyers is we don't, we don't work alone typically. Uh, it's, exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned social workers. I, you know, uh, I, I think their work was really important when, even with the ICE raids. Absolutely. There were a number of people who came in um, to the area to provide mental health support um, because as you might imagine, the event was extremely traumatic for a lot of people involved. And 
um, you know, people lost family members who were detained and just the trauma of going through a raid um, because, you know, it's just people at work and then, you know, armed officers. I understand from one of the press conferences that about 600 armed officers were involved in the raids, you know, throughout the state. So, um, you know, people with whom we were working were talking about how terrifying it was and then seeing, you know, having to line up and go to this barracks and not knowing what was going to happen to you or your family. Um, you were just there working, um, you know, caused a lot of trauma um, for a lot of people. Amelia, I'm so glad that you were able to join us, that we have the technology now to have you uh, crystal clear uh, to, to join us to talk about this topic during Thanksgiving, where you might have the idea of immigrants being welcomed by Native peoples to our lands. But thank you so much for being part of our show today. Thank you so much, Liz and Richard. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms today. Our team consists of board engineer and podcast producer Abram Nanny, and Charles Arnold was our call screener today. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Drive safely. Drive safely. You don't want to get stopped by law enforcement uh, on, a, on a stop. So drive very carefully and have a lovely Thanksgiving. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.